Hi everyone, Morning Hill City family. We're so glad you joined us here today online. I'm coming to you from my home and like many of you, I am not so happy with the whole online setup. I know it's really difficult sometimes to feel like you're connected to the community when you're stuck inside of your house. Uh, over the last few weeks, you might have thought, mm, I'm not really into listening to sermons online, whether it's because you have laundry to fold and chores to distract you, or because your kids are running around and won't be quiet, or because you'd just rather sleep in or watch the next Netflix show or get a head start on the work you have to be doing, even though you are stuck at home. Uh, any of those reasons or any more that you have are perfectly valid. It's really hard to do this online and it's not the way it's meant to be long term. But I want you to know, even for me, it's really difficult for John, for other people as we prepare these messages to be speaking to a lifeless camera instead of being with all of you in person. But as the church, as disciples of Jesus, we're called to make decisions that sometimes go against our preferences or desires in order to live out our calling to love our neighbors and our enemies even. We're not staying away because we're fearful or because we don't trust in the power of God, but we're doing this so that we may say to the world, yes, followers of Jesus care about your life. We care about the lives of the people you love who are vulnerable and we care about this world that we all live in together. Of course, being online doesn't mean we can't have real life interactions still with the people in our homes or, you know, even through the means that technology gives us. And you know from what John posted earlier this week that we're still continuing to encourage you to live out your calling as the church, to reach out to neighbors in the ways that you can with the current stay at home orders and just to be really creative in living out your calling. So continue to be followers of Jesus, knowing that this is what the church has always been, not a building, but a people following King Jesus in his servant way. Let's go ahead and pray before we get started. Dear God, I just thank you so much for this day, for this Sunday that we're all gathered together online that we can en encourage one another, even in the text comments in watching this service, and that we can encourage each other, the other people who are gathered around us. Pray right now, Lord, for all the people involved in the Hill City community, that they would be encouraged in their work. Maybe they're essential personnel, healthcare workers, other people who are on the front lines of this, Lord, and we pray that you would protect them that you give them the resources that they need, that you'd help us to gather around them and support them in whatever ways necessary. Pray for the parents at home with kids. We pray for the kids at home with parents, Lord. Pray for all of us as we are gathered together in smaller spaces than we're used to, that we would just use this time to really dig into what it means to be your followers what it means to love God and to love others. And we pray you bless this new series and just help us, Lord, to learn something and apply something from it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm praying even as I prepare to speak this message that you guys would really be able to get something out of it because today we begin a new series called Kingdom Come. 
In this short three-week series, we're going to be talking about the season of Easter. can't believe it's only a few weeks away. And about the truly transformative, revolutionary, upside-down kingdom, which Christ announced and began through the climactic moment of his suffering, death, and resurrection. I think it can be really easy if we've been Christians long enough to sort of forget the importance of this story, to forget that all of world history, all of our faith hangs on this one week, this one moment where there was a great reversal of expectations, where there was a great reversal of sin and death and a great reversal of human life and what the purpose of our lives is. All through New Testament writings, you can see how for the early church, this was the most important moment. It was the moment upon which their faith was built. In Romans 5, 6 through 11, Paul writes, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though... For a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we are reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So in Romans, this book that was written as this theological treatise, Paul uh, all throughout points to the importance of this week in history, this time when everything changed through Jesus' sacrifice. Paul writes in a very different letter in 1 Corinthians, which he's writing more as a defense of his uh, status and his ability to speak into the lives of these people that he has nurtured in the faith, uh, he still focuses on the cross. In 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 25, he writes, Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So you can see in a very different way, in very different circumstances, Paul still is basing his entire argument in this letter around the cross, around Christ crucified, around the idea that he sacrificed himself during this particular week of history. Then in the last book of the Bible, John writes uh, through this amazing visionary experience he's having in Revelation 5, 1 through 10. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, 
a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. But I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out onto all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for god persons from every tribe and language and people and nation you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our god and they will reign on the earth so the new testament beginning to to the end is about this story christians beginning to the end have been about this story, this one week of human history. But how are we going to explain why this week was so important and how it has changed the world? Like I said, in the next three weeks, we will be looking at what Jesus's Passion Week deconstructed, what it tore down and did away with, and then what it reconstructed, what it rebuilt or announced and this week is sort of a setup or a prologue as we talk about the context and background information that we need to know to really truly understand the importance of Easter. I have to warn you, because it is context, because it is background information, some of this may seem a little dry. Um, it's not going to seem as exciting as the weeks to come necessarily, but I just really encourage you to dig in. It's going to be a lot of information in the short amount of time we have, but I want you to dig in, stick with it, take some notes, and really uh, figure out why this information is important and how it adjusts your view of this particular week of human history. So as we begin, I just want to say again, context is so important. It's funny because, you know, the Sunday school answer is always Jesus. If somebody throws out a random question in church, you can be sure to get some churchy people who jokingly say, Jesus, Jesus. Well, in seminary, the answer is always context. It's the big C answer. So when you talk to pastors or academics who've been through different classes, they'll tell you, Hey, have you looked at the context? And context is important in reading anything, not just the Bible or even in conversations with people. How many times have you misunderstood what somebody meant because you didn't get the full context of the situation they were dealing with? Let me prove to you just with one example or with at least two words how important context is. What comes to mind 
when you hear the word wilderness. I'll give you a couple minutes. Maybe you guys are typing in the box on the side of the Facebook live video. Just whatever comes to mind. Type it. Type it in. Maybe you talk with it with the people around you. Kids, throw out your answers too. Wilderness. What comes to mind? Does it change your answer at all? If you know that that word is appearing in a Bible story. For example, Jesus is 40 days in the wilderness. Does your image of what the wilderness is change? It's interesting because some people, when they hear wilderness, think of untouched forests or maybe the middle of the Sahara Desert. But when we know it's in the context of a Bible story, many of us probably imagine the sort of dry, scrubby, uh, pseudo-desert land that you see in Israel in certain places. Very similar to Colorado in some respects and some of our trails. What comes to mind, here's another example, when you think of the word kingdom? Again, right off the bat, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Take a minute and think about it. Now, some of you are cheating. You're already jumping to the biblical context, and I'm encouraging you not to do that and be the, you know, know-it-all that skips there. But for a lot of us, when we hear the word kingdom, we think of typical Renaissance fair type images. Queens and kings, knights, jesters, cone hats on fair ladies. But of course, for people in Japan or Kenya or anywhere else in the world, the imagery they think of would be very different. It would have to do with their past history. And in Jesus's day, the answer would be different too. So when Jesus tells his followers to pray, your kingdom come, they wouldn't be thinking of the same kind of kingdom that we think of. Not to mention that they wouldn't have our weird imagery of cherubs strumming harps on clouds when they finish that sentence and say, kingdom of heaven. But that's a totally different subject, and we're not going to go into it today. But you see, unless you were trying to think through what those words meant for the original hearers in their day and time, and unless you have the wider context of the sentence they appear in, or the passage, or the book, it's hard to judge what meaning they have. And we do that in bigger ways when we don't understand even the history or the events surrounding different passages in the Bible. Because the Bible, the, the events in the Bible take place over hundreds and hundreds of years. And so to place them all in the same category and not understand the history and the context behind them uh, really robs us of understanding things fully. So... For many of us who uh, look at a Bible and look at the context of the gospel specifically, we don't think of there being a gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between what happens at the end of the Old Testament and the coming of Jesus. We just minimize that gap and say Old Testament, New Testament. And we don't maybe realize that there were about 400 some years between the end of Malachi and the birth of Jesus. Sometimes we call this a silent period, 
and we don't really think through the idea that history wasn't on pause for the Jews during this time. There were still faithful Jews listening to God, praying and wrestling with the idea of being his chosen people while numerous historical events occurred and different things changed the mindset and worldview of the people living then. And this all affected the time when Jesus was born and walked the earth and died and rose again. And although there's so much we could cover about this time, we're going to look specifically at two concepts. As this series is called Kingdom Come, my two concepts are the idea of what a king is, the concept of king, and the concept of a kingdom. So first we have the concept of a king. When the people of Jesus's day thought about a king, what did they think of? What was the history that influenced that image? Many of you know that during Jesus' time, they had many conceptions of what his ministry was about that were different from what he planned. Some thought he was a Messiah, the Messiah, the anointed one chosen by God. But their concept of Messiah of a rescuer was based on a picture of a conquering king. This idea might have started with uh, David and his son Solomon in the golden age of Israel that people looked back at. After all, it was prophesied that the Messiah would come from their lineage. But a lot happened in the intertestamental period between old and new that also affected what the people expected from the Messiah. After the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi ends, life went on for the Jewish people under the rule of several different conquering nations. I'm going to run through a couple. The first one's fairly quickly, but if you want to dig deeper into this history, uh, I would suggest getting the book Jesus and the Gospels by Craig Blomberg, who spoke at church a few weeks ago, and look specifically at his section on historical background. But for those of you who are kind of rolling your eyes and not too excited about this history bit, I'll try to be quick in summarizing what could be talked about for quite a while. So after the book of Malachi ends in about 424 BC, the Persians take over and the Persians rule Israel until about 331 BC. Now during this time is when Aramaic became the main language of the region. And that's probably what Jesus and his disciples spoke. And that's why you get Aramaic phrases in the gospels. Then you also had the rise of synagogues because the temple wasn't available. People were meeting more often in smaller groups and that synagogue uh, synagogues became that meeting place for the community. You also probably had the rise of the oral law, which was basically the laws and traditions formed around the law of Moses. So there were laws for keeping the law of Moses that we see in the Old Testament. Then after the Persians, there was the Hellenistic period. Remember Alexander the Great? Well, Israel was also conquered during his conquest and they came under Greek rule in 331 BC. Now, during this time, there was great mass communication. The Greek language was used all over, which explains why the New Testament is written in Greek. 
And there was an influence of Greek culture as cities were built, and those cities included gymnasiums and bathhouses and temples to their gods. Now, all of these might have seemed like advances for the Greek people, but for the Jews, these were all signs of compromise. These were all things that you had to participate in while sacrificing some of your Jewish identity. During this period, you also have the Greek Old Testament translated because back then there were so many Jews who began speaking Greek as their first language. There was a need to translate the Old Testament in Hebrew to Greek. And that's what where you get what we call the Septuagint, which is also what the New Testament writers use when they're quoting the Old Testament, Paul or anyone else. They're most often using this Greek version. Then, after the Greeks, you had the Egyptians, because after Alexander the Great's death, uh, this area was mostly split between two factions, the Egyptians, or the Ptolemies, and the Syrians to the north, the, the Seleucids. And so the Egyptians won out, had Israel for a while, and during this time, if you can imagine, Egypt to the south. Syria to the north, what's in between? Well, Israel, the land and its people were constantly being trampled under these two forces as they fought back and forth. And it was also during this time that probably tax collectors in Israel were established because as we all know, to fight a war, you gotta have lots and lots of money. So when you're thinking of Zacchaeus or any of those tax collectors, Matthew mentioned in the New Testament, it was actually established way back before them when a conquering force, the Egyptians, ruled. Then the Syrians won out in uh, 198. They took over Israel and they also needed to tax their subjects and they did it even more heavily than the Egyptians so that the people were just really... Uh, trampled down under the weight of the burden of these taxes and just their brutality. A ruler from this line, from the line of the Seleucids, the Syrians, Antiochus, you might recognize the name, the fourth, is pretty well known by Christians uh, for his brutality. He enforced heavy taxation, Hellenistic culture, and proclaimed himself a god. Jews celebrated when they heard that he had died in a battle. But he hadn't. So when he returned back to Israel, he famously looted Jerusalem, the temple, killed thousands of people, turned the temple into a temple for Zeus, and sacrificed a pig on an altar in that temple. He made it illegal to do anything that was Jewish to circumcise or to worship in the ways Jews were supposed to. And it's not surprising that the Jews and many Christians since have uh, interpreted the prophecy in Daniel about the abomination of desolation or abomination that causes desolation to refer to him. There was obviously resentment that grew during this period. After all, the Jews were not allowed to uh, have any of the distinctives that marked them as God's chosen people. And as resentment grew, there was just this desire to revolt against Antiochus and against the Syrian power. During this time, a priest named Matthias was ordered to sacrifice on an unauthorized altar in Judea, and he refused. Then 
He killed the man who volunteered in his place and the soldier who was watching over the ceremony. To escape authorities, he and his five sons fled to the hills and led a rebellion against the Syrian forces using guerrilla warfare. Matthias's son, Judas Maccabeus, sound familiar, the Maccabees, took over and Judas led the revolution after his father died. Because Syria had divided attention, they were staving off enemies everywhere, they could not concentrate their forces on protecting their holding in Israel. And so eventually the rebellion worked and the temple was purified in 164 BC when the Maccabees were able to take back Jerusalem. The Syrians were completely removed from the area in 142 BC and a golden area, uh, a golden era of self-governance was brought on by this Maccabean revolution. The Jews set up a line of kings because they were looking back to the example of David. So they set the Maccabees up as a line of priest kings and had the descendants one after another rule. The Jewish hatred for Gentiles during this era was incredible, and you can understand why. Uh, all of this and being able to take back their land gave them hope of establishing a line of kings that was like the Davidic line, maybe even leading to the Messiah. You, were, you can imagine, too, how excited they were to return back to that supposed golden era. But eventually, like kings do, the line of kings became corrupt. And a group that were actually the forerunners to the Pharisees in the New Testament started voicing their discontent with how hypocritical the group of kings were. After a power struggle between two descendants of the Maccabees over the throne, Rome stepped in and took over. Pompey, a general for Rome, invaded in 63 BC and entered the Holy of Holies in the temple. This ended the Jews' self-governance and, side note, wasn't ever given back to them until 1945. So the Roman period began with Pompey taking over in 63 and Rome established a descendant of the Maccabees as the new high priest. They turned it into a political role, even though it was always supposed to be a person from the Levitical line chosen by God. They also put the Herods, who were actually not really Jewish to begin with, in charge as political leaders in the land. As a positive, Judaism was made a legal religion and they weren't like they were under Antiochus forced to not practice. But uh, this Roman peace that everybody talks about in the history books wasn't as peaceful as you might have imagined. The way Romans kept the peace was by taxing people heavily, by violently crushing any revolt, especially through their favorite method of crucifixion. And that's how they kept the peace. Still, mass communication, development of roads and transportation systems all meant that when the New Testament did come around, it was during a time when Paul could actually send his letters and then be delivered swiftly. 
This was like no other time before it. We know that Roman uh, governors were put into place, and you might recognize the name Pilate. He was put in charge for a while, but he was notorious for causing bloodshed, and he even stole temple funds to build an aqueduct in Jerusalem. Ow. I know that was a long blurb, and you may be wondering, what does all this have to do with the idea or the concept of king? But the thing is, without knowing this history, you won't understand what Jews of the day were thinking about a king. You'll notice throughout all these hundreds of years and all the rulership of different nations, there was only a brief time when Israel was self-governing. And even then, the line of kings became corrupt and they were taken over. But there were still Jews during this time faithfully searching the scriptures, wondering, when is our Messiah going to come? They were reading the promises of God and wondering why it was taking so long for the kingdom to be established. Why God had not established a king like David or like Solomon. To Jews throughout this period, the idea of, of a king became more and more about anyone who was willing to kick out the invaders, just like the Maccabees did. And they wanted to establish a kingly line. It was much more about this than it was about any of the prophecies that sort of got sidelined like the ones in Isaiah about God's suffering servant, or in Isaiah again, about a leader who would bring in Gentiles to worship God. Of course, they had good reasons for hating Gentiles, but those prophecies that spoke about how the Messiah would suffer and how the Messiah would bring in Gentiles to worship God were sort of sidelined because they really wanted a king who could destroy their enemy and give them freedom once again. Additionally, none of them were looking for anything beyond a heroic or godly man. So Jesus's claims when he did come to earth about equality with God, about being his son, about communicating with him and having a level of interpretation of the scriptures that nobody else did, seemed kind of far-fetched. They wanted a king like David, like Judas Maccabee, a king to put up against Caesar and against Pilate and Herod and all of the rest of the outsiders who were ruling over them. But how would this be established? Well, this brings us to the concept of kingdom. The idea of kingdom and what it would take to get that kingdom to be established kind of divided several groups that existed during Jesus's day. There's four main groups who had different religious ideas and different ideas about how they could fulfill the hopes and dreams of kingdom. The first one was the Pharisees, named probably Noel. They were the most theologically similar to Jesus because they had a belief in the afterlife and trust in all of the Old Testament scriptures. But they also followed a oral or traditional law that was meant to apply the law of Moses to their modern day lives. Those laws were passed down and they saw themselves as guardians of the law, making sure that people were able to apply it well to their lives. Many of them felt sincerely that law keeping 
was the way that they were going to be righteous before God, that Israel was again going to be righteous before God so that he would bring his Messiah and establish a new kingdom. For the Sadducees, another name you might recognize, power was ultimate. They were power brokers. They only believed in the law portion of the Old Testament, didn't believe in the afterlife or angels or demons. But more importantly, they believed in money. They were rich and often willing to work with the Romans to protect themselves. The best of them did this to keep Israel as safe as possible. And the worst of them did it just to keep hold of their power. From the group of Sadducees, the high priest and his family, the priestly families, uh, came. They were all part of the Sadducee group, which explains why the high priest in Jesus's day said, it's better for one man to die than for all of Israel to suffer Rome's wrath. They seem to think, the group of Sadducees seem to think that there would never be a kingdom without appeasing the governing authorities. As you can tell, the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't get along. Sometimes we group them together. And that's why it's even more surprising that they came together to bring Jesus to trial, to arrest him. Third group during this time was the Zealots. They believed that the kingdom would come when Jews rose up and took the land by force. And so they often staged violent attacks on the authorities, which resulted in violent reciprocation from the Romans. Last group is the Essenes. E-S-S-E-N-E-S, -S -E -E the Essenes. This is a group you probably haven't heard about because they're not mentioned in the Bible, but we do have them to thank for preserving many scrolls, and they're related to the Dead Sea Scroll community. They were a monastic group. They uh, secluded themselves away in the desert. Some people think maybe John the Baptist could have been one. Who knows? But they believed in a purity of life according to their interpretation of scripture. They saw themselves as the only righteous ones and that all the other religious groups were just fooling themselves. They believed in a time when a Messiah would come and establish the kingdom in a sort of end times fire from heaven scenario. So with these four groups, you'll notice they each had a distinct idea of what it would take to get the kingdom to be established in Israel. And often it involved geography, specific places, Jerusalem, certain pieces of land and the ability to rule over it. They were looking for a kingdom on earth that would look like every other kingdom they had seen or heard about. And this is why it is so important that Jesus spent a huge part of his ministry, a huge part of his teaching, talking about what the kingdom of God would really look like, where it would really be. As you can imagine, when he grew more popular with the people, this only angered these groups more because, especially for the Pharisees and Sadducees, the people weren't listening to them anymore, weren't listening to their idea of kingdom. They were instead listening to this new teacher. As we'll see in the coming weeks, Jesus turned a lot of life upside down as he announced his kingdom and came to the final week of his life. By that time, he had made enemies of so many people, leaders in the community, 
and he had not established a rebel band, a rebel force to violently take over like some of his disciples expected and hoped for. Instead, at the time of the festival of Passover, he went to the slaughter, just like the Passover lamb, and suffered the horrific criminal death of crucifixion under the rule of an occupying barbaric force. Not exactly the king anyone was looking for. And yet it was this week, this death, and what happened after in the resurrection that transformed a tiny group of people meeting in a house to one of the largest belief systems in the world. It was trust in this king that would transform the Roman Empire eventually before its fall, and then transform the barbarians who took it over. My ancestors. <laughs> it would preserve human knowledge through the work of monks, and it would establish universities and support and encourage work in medicine and literature, science, and the arts. This story of this one week in the history has changed the world many times over, and I hope this story has changed you personally. At Hill City, we're actually looking to collect videos from you guys sharing just one way that Jesus has transformed your life. You can send those to john, john at myhillcity.org. But as we close, let's consider something. I know there's been a lot of history, a lot of information. Some of you might have turned off the video already. I hope not. But we'd be fooling ourselves if we think these people with their different concepts of king and kingdom are any different from us. What belief, this is the question I want you to consider as we close and maybe talk about if you're still uh, meeting online with your life groups, which I hope you are. This is a question to consider. What belief about king or kingdom are you struggling with personally? Maybe like the Pharisees, you think following the Bible, going to church and praying will bring about a better life for you. It'll protect you. It'll keep you safe. It'll keep your family safe. Maybe give you benefits. Maybe like the Sadducees, you think that you have to be responsible for working hard and playing the game and manipulating the powers that be, making money so that you can live the life you've always wanted. Maybe like the zealots, you want to fight battles wherever you find them. Talk about your rights all the time. Push and push to make sure no one ever takes advantage of you. Maybe like the Essenes, it's easier to just shut the rest of the world out. To not worry about anybody else. And just wait for God to strike whoever it might be down. The way of Jesus is different than all of this. The way of Jesus calls us to an uncomfortable life, an ultimate loyalty to him, a life in a kingdom that many do not recognize. It involves loving people who are really hard to love, sacrificing for the needs of a suffering world, speaking hard truth with love in an age where either we stay silent or we just lob verbal assaults at each other on social media. I challenge you to think about this. Your conception of king and kingdom 
and what Jesus might be calling you to do today to live as a subject in his kingdom, a disciple of the king. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I know I have felt even so silly just sitting here in this room recording by myself, but I know that you are here with me. I know that you are there in the room with every person listening to this message and that you are there with every single Christian as they read your word and dig into it and pray and really search out what it means to be a subject in your kingdom, what it means to be a representative of Christ, a disciple, a servant. God, we surrender our lives to you. Whatever is holding us back, whether it's pursuit of money or safety or our idea of what things should look like, we surrender those things to you now, Jesus. You are our only king, and we give to you our lives, the lives of our families, give you our neighborhoods, our state, our country. We give you all of the false conceptions in our mind. We give you every lie, Lord. We surrender ourselves to you, body, soul, and mind, and ask that you would show us, show us as the community of Hill City, how to love others, and how to love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. Hope you'll be back again next week, and keep checking with our Facebook page and our emails to stay up to date. Goodbye.